0: This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: In this episode of the FCPA Report, I visit with Don Stern. Don is a Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. He's a former U.S. attorney for the state of Massachusetts. We talk about the role of the U.S. attorney in the Department of Justice, how the U.S. attorneys across the country relate back to Maine justice, and how cases are handled uh, in a variety of situations. It's a fascinating exploration of the U.S. attorney's office. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and I have back with me Don Stern, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. Uh, Don was the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts at one point in his career, so I asked him if he might come on and explain the uh, the structure of U.S. attorneys across the country, how they relate to uh, Maine justice in Washington, and, and generally explain to the layman what it means to be a U.S. attorney. So, Don, first of all, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me, and welcome back.
0: Thank you very much, Don. Good to be here.
1: Don, can you describe for us the structure literally across the country of the Department of Justice?
0: Sure. Uh, the Department of Justice, obviously, is uh, the main office is, is centered in Washington. And actually, within the department, it's referred to as "quote main justice" uh, because uh, although some of the functions are located in Washington, there are 93 U.S. attorneys scattered all across the country who uh, have significant authority and discretion to bring both civil and criminal cases in their respective jurisdictions. So it's a it's a mixture. It's it's in some ways, Tom, a unique. Uh, animal in in federal governmental uh, organizations, because while things are, as we'll talk about in a minute, while things are to some extent centralized, they're also decentralized in a way that really doesn't happen very often in the federal government. And uh, you've got representatives of the Department of Justice, U.S. attorneys and their offices, which represent federal interests, but also try uh, to uh, gear their priorities and their activities to local needs.
1: Uh, Could you maybe now, Don, focus on the role of a U.S. attorney or at least the role uh, when you held that position?
0: Well, it hasn't really changed much and and one of the interesting things is the u s attorneys positions u s attorneys themselves are appointed by the President, confirmed by the the Senate, so they're presidential appointments, but they now serve, if you will, under the umbrella uh, of the Department of Justice and the Attorney general of, of the United States, and all criminal cases uh, in various uh, federal districts uh, have to be brought. This is is probably an overgeneralization, but but, but it's about 95 or 90 percent true. Have to be brought by U.S. attorneys. So if the FBI, DEA, ATF, any federal agency investigates a case and they seek to have that case prosecuted criminally, they really need the U.S. attorney to uh, approve the prosecution and to move it forward. On the civil side, it's similar. Um, The the U.S. attorney's offices represent the United States uh, in their civil capacity. There, the authority is a little bit more diffused because you have individuals instances where federal agencies have the authority to bring civil cases themselves. The SEC is a classic example. The Federal Trade Commission is another example where Congress has delegated to those agencies the authority to bring civil cases on behalf of the agencies. That's really not the case on the criminal side. The Department of Justice is pretty much the only game in town.
1: Don, what's the structure of the U.S. Attorney's Office itself? Did you have attorneys working under you, and how did that process work?
0: Well, there, there are, uh, yes, the, you have attorneys. When I was there, we had a little bit over hundred. I had a little bit over hundred uh, U.S. Assistant U.S. Attorneys working uh, under under my general supervision. Uh, some of the larger offices: L.A., Houston, Chicago, New York, and of course, New York has has several. U.S. attorney's offices. They, they could actually have several hundred assistant U.S. attorneys working in those offices. And, and typically, although it varies from office to office, typically they're divided up into a civil side and a criminal side. And then, and then on the criminal side, they are often broken into particular areas. For example, when, when I was U.S. attorney, we had a drug unit. We had an organized crime unit. We had people who focused specifically on healthcare care fraud. Uh, we had a public corruption unit. So you, you tend to you, you break the office into various uh, specialized groups with some overlap between the groups.
1: Don, if I could now turn to policy, and, and certainly in the anti-corruption world, we've had policy pronouncements uh, by uh, either uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates had one, Brian Benchkowski uh, had one. But could you describe the how policy is set, and then how is it carried out uh, in the 93 U.S. attorney's offices across the country?
0: Well, there, there are really two different types of policies, Tom. The first is our policies which govern how cases are to be brought, what the standards are, uh, what, what the threshold for uh, bringing a case, uh, how immunity is to be granted or not granted in a particular case. And those are usually reflected in what's called the U.S. attorney's manual, uh, and the so-called litigating divisions of the Department of Justice also look to the U.S. Attorney's manual. Uh, and those policies are really set by the Attorney General with a lot of input over the years from what's called the um, uh, Attorney General's Advisory Committee, which is a representative body that that, that wrote with rotating membership that Meets usually once a month and uh, discusses policy that might be uh, applicable to the U.S. Attorney's offices. I actually was chairman of that group for a couple of years when I was when I was U.S. Attorney, and the Attorney General typically look to that to, to what's called the AGAC for some advice. But in the end, it's up the to the Attorney General to decide what goes into the U.S. Attorney's Manual. The other kind of policy is what are the substantive priorities of the various, of the Department of Justice and the various U.S. attorneys. Do we wanna focus on, on drugs? Do we wanna focus on the opioid crisis? Do we wanna focus on, on uh, child pornography, uh, immigration issues, uh, telemarketing, cybercrime, et cetera? And there again, those are general policies that are set by the, the Attorney General and they vary from administration to administration. But there's there's also within that umbrella a fair amount of flexibility and discretion afforded to individual U.S. attorney's offices to uh, tailor those priorities, those national priorities, to the needs and requirements uh, of their particular district.
1: Don, I know one question that I have always had is, does a U.S. attorney, or how do they decide to open an investigation, does investigative agencies such as the uh, FBI come to you with evidence? Is it uh, more of a policy? Uh, I guess now the the PPE um, um, uh, fraud and PPE fraud has been identified as a major area of investigation. But how would you, as a U.S. attorney, uh, decide to uh, either open an investigation or move forward with a prosecution?
0: Yeah, it's a good question and, and, and one that, uh, you know, over the years I've been asked a lot. It, the short answer is it varies and there's no one size fits all. So just to put it into context, Tom, um, the traditional model of prosecution, even federal prosecution or across the country, was the investigative agency does the investigation by itself, interviews witnesses, et cetera, bundles up all the evidence and presents it to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the U.S. Attorney's decision about whether to go forward or not, and that that model still applies in what I would call sort of simple cases. You know, somebody goes into a, a, a bank, a federally insured bank, with a with a note and robs the bank, uh, and the the FBI is waiting outside. They arrest the person. That case is is, is pretty. Cut and dried in that case would might be presented to the U.S. Attorney's Office for federal prosecution, but that model over the years, for good reason, has changed. And what you see now, particularly in in sophisticated cases and in complex cases, is basically a marriage between the investigative agencies and the resources and judgment and skill of the Assistant U.S. Attorneys involved in the case. So, and that's in part. Um, And and it's really that partnership which really often builds the best cases. Now, some of that is because the toolkit available to federal agencies, FBI, DEA, you name it, does not include, for example, the authority to use the grand jury. So if you're going to use a grand jury to investigate a case – You need the U.S. Attorney's Office because they are the only lawyers that can make presentations to the grand jury. If you want a wiretap, the FBI doesn't have the authority to go to a judge and get a wiretap. You need the U.S. Attorney's Office to do that or main justice, some lawyer in main justice. If you want to, um, uh, uh, you know, grant immunity— to a witness, if for let's say you're working up the, the chain of command in an organized crime case, so you might want to grant immunity to some lower level member of organized crime in an effort to kind of reach up the food chain to get at the bosses, uh, the, the FBI doesn't have the authority to grant immunity. Only the U.S. Attorney's Office or the Department of Justice does. So that's a long winded way of saying that the, the best cases, the most complicated cases, are, are almost always done. Um, in partnerships with investigative agencies and the prosecutors working together.
1: Um, Don, if there's a prosecution involving a Maine Justice investigation, but it's done in one of the uh, U.S. Attorneys' offices, say here in, in Houston, does the uh, are the trial lawyers from Maine Justice, are the trial lawyers from the local U.S. Attorney's office? Uh, is it both, or is it really just a um, individual uh, uh, case-by-case basis?
0: Well, generally, generally, it's both. I think, again, it, it, it you know, there are certain subject areas that are really carved out as kind of the mainstays of, of Maine justice. I'll, the classic example might be, let's say, a, um, an antitrust case, which requires uh, considerable expertise and specialization. Very few U.S. attorney's offices are going to have the ongoing expertise to really prosecute uh, a, an antitrust case. Um, and so Maine justice will come in and do that. But here again, Uh, It's the local U.S. attorney's offices that know the judges, they know the juries, they know the environment, they know, you know, the the local custom and practice. And so even there, um, I remember we had a a major antitrust case that was being tried during my tenure and it was being tried largely by uh, lawyers out of the antitrust division in Washington. But I had somebody in my office uh, with some expertise in the area basically serve as local counsel. Uh, So uh, it's rare that the U.S. attorney's offices are not involved in each and every case, and often, let's say in in an FCPA case, there could well be and likely would be lawyers from the, the fraud section involved. But but here again, they would probably work in partnership with an assistant an AUSA in that respective office, whether it's Houston, Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, you name it. Um, and, and that's and usually there are very good relationships between US. attorneys' offices and Maine justice. So those things, if they're done right, will work seamlessly.
1: Uh, Don, what's uh, the uh, structure or situation when you have a, uh, a major prosecution around a task force? And the example uh, I, I'm familiar with is the Enron Task Force from the early 2000s here in Houston. But it could be, you know, 2020, it could be PPE, excuse me, PPE Task Force. How is that structured? Well,
0: usually that reflects uh, priorities of, of, of the attorney general and of the Department of Justice. So often it's in response to a particular problem. Um, so, you, you you know, there might be, as you said, an Enron task force, which was, was in response to a particular issue. You, you may remember, it, Tom, in the early 90s, I think, there were a whole slew of savings and loan failures, many of them centered, for example, in Texas. A number of them were also centered uh, in New England. <clears throat> and there were, were a couple of what they call bank fraud task force that were set up uh, it's one in Texas, one in one in New England that was geared to prosecuting and examining just those cases. We have opioid task force now that are that are that are usually composed of representatives of regional representatives of various U.S. attorneys offices, and um, th- those work pretty well. Um, you know, the idea is to provide special training and focus to a group of experienced prosecutors who will, kind of in a laser-beam fashion, focus on a particular problem. Uh, And that's what you're seeing with the PPE, which is, you know, government is giving out billions, trillions of dollars, and we know if you follow the money, there's going to be some fraud. And so why not get ahead of it, which the department has done, and set up some task force to uh, examine where the money is going.
1: I'd like to turn now to the structure within the individual U.S. Attorney's Office, And uh, once again, looking to your experience, uh, did the attorneys under you, were they assigned cases? Uh, Did they bring cases to you or their supervisors for consideration? How does that work within an individual office?
0: Yeah, it, it varies. And, you know, in, in some uh, some offices, the larger offices, and I'll say they typically deal with more complex cases. Um, you know, it, it, it may vary from office to office. But, you know, at least in my experience, there were, there were some cases that I probably never saw. You know, use my bank robber example again. If there was an individual, you know, uh, bank robbery in in. Boston, Revere, Worcester, wherever it was, and that was being investigated by the FBI. That would go to what we call the major major crime unit. I probably wouldn't see that. That would be approved by the chief of the major crimes unit, and then approved typically by the, the the chief of the criminal division in my office. And I may never see that one. On the other hand, if it was a case uh, involving you know some complexity or some sensitivity. That would kind of go up the chain. It would go up from the unit chief. Let's say if it was an organized crime case, it would go up from the uh, from what we call the strike force to the criminal chief to the first assistant. Uh, and then I would, I would look at it and examine um, the matter and, and, and typically meet with on an ongoing basis with the AUSAs who are on the front line in the case before authorizing a prosecution. So it varies from office to office and from case to case. There are some particular cases that require, this is again all set forth in the U.S. Attorney's Manual, will require the approval of the U.S. Attorney's Office. And in some cases require the approval of the particular litigating division in the Department of Justice. So sometimes the approval process does not stop at the U.S. Attorney's Office. It requires approval uh, by um, a, a uh, supervisor in Washington.
1: Well, Don, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for uh, this episode, but I wanted to thank you. I think you've uh, maybe thrown back the veil a little bit on on what many of us uh, who've been traditionally on the civil side of things, or at least practiced in state court, uh, really didn't understand. So uh, thank you again. I look forward to continuing the conversation. I'm glad to do it, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm pleased to announce that the latest podcast series in the Compliance Podcast Network, The Wirecard Saga, has premiered. Originally, it was on the FCPA Compliance Report, but due to its popularity, I have rolled it into its own podcast series. Subscribe to it on the Compliance Podcast Network. It will be out on iTunes the first week in December, so subscribe to the iTunes version of the Wirecard Saga. We're going to take this as long as we can. I know you'll enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.